While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. travel adventure is what we're going to talk about we're it's because we're not talking about that time my kitchen blew up again I'll tell you that right now <laughs> i got snowed in in the airport that's what happened that's never happened to me before it's never, never happened been... to me before either apparently like i don't know it's this whole boring thing travel stories are boring but i long story short is i had a layover in chicago and apparently winter had had just grabbed chicago by the throat and squeezed until its eyes popped out of its head (laughs) welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig call me andrew oh i see what you did there why were you in chicago andrew it was a layover where had you been las vegas what is your favorite thing about las vegas leaving Leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> Why do you hate Sin City it's so much? It's just trying so hard, but it's <laughs> like if you talk to any of the cab drivers who are who are ferrying you from place to place, it's like obviously the only stuff that goes on there is big conventions. Like the town has been dying a slow, protracted death for a while, but there are still all these like giant mountainous hotels everywhere uh-huh. including one that they built most of and then they ran out of money and then they just left it <laughs> but do you can, a you, giant still, can empty, you get a room there no it's a giant empty mostly hotel i would have figured they would have like just gotten to floor 47 and be like all right no, close yeah, it up you, let's you turn this thing into a working hotel i don't think that's how buildings work and i also don't think that you could sell rooms in a ghost hotel which would um, be my plan to monetize it um I don't know, but I would definitely read a book called Ghost Hotel. <laughs> I'd be all up in that. Neutral Ghost Hotel. That's my favorite band. Me too. All right, Greg, you read a big book. Finally. Oh, man. Finally, you read this book. So I guess we should get on to it because there is talk, a lot to do. We should talk about Moby Dick or comma, The Whale by Herman Melville. Wait, is it's, its alternate title The Whale? Yes, I, and I think it was initially published in Britain as The Whale. Okay. Um, I mean, there's a whale in it, so it's fitting, I guess. I, mean, it's, I can't decide if that's better or worse than Moby Dick, I guess. Because now Moby Dick is synonymous with whale, but I guess back in the day, you would see that that book and it'd be like, Moby Dick, what's that? Is that about a trans band? Wait, is it 1870 and I'm looking at a book called Moby Dick wondering if it's about a trance band? Yeah, about Moby. About my, my boy Moby. You do know that he's related to Herman Melville, right? Really? Yeah. Whoa. Is that where his stage name comes from? Yes. Whoa. I learn something new about Moby pretty much every day. Um, did you also know that uh, Starbucks, your favorite house for Ventis and Grandes, uh, also took its name from the book? No. 
there's a man named Starbuck in it. Okay. And I they... prefer Queequeg's coffee myself. <laughs> All right, so Queequeg's original roast. <laughs> so this book Moby Dick by this guy Herman Melville. Do you know anything about Herman Melville, or am I Not... gonna have to pick up your slack again? No, you're gonna have to pick up my slack a little bit. I know that he. Uh, lived all entirely in the 19th century. He did not span any additional centuries. Um, <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah, no. he was born in 1819, died in 1891. And he, um, in addition to being a writer before he became the successful writer that he was, he spent many a year on a on a boat, on many boats, on whaling boats. See, even. the fact that you say that he was a, sex, a, sex, a successful writer tells me that you didn't research do and do enough research because during his life like moby dick was had a lukewarm reception it wasn't yeah not well received it wasn't his first novel and it wasn't the last thing that he wrote his follow-up book to that was called pierre and apparently it was so awful that it mostly ended his career as a popular writer and it was only um later in the 1920s when when people kind of rediscovered him and and popularized him and canonized him. And yeah, um, there we, was a there was a book called Billy Bud that was published posthumously in 1924 and I don't I don't know whether that was a cause of that revival or a a result of it, but either way, yeah, 1920s is when um Melville became a person who we would hear about, you know. Well, and I think that's we'll get into this when we get into the book specifically, but I think that owes some of that is owed to the success of James Joyce at the turn of the 20th century and kind of the birth of modernism because there's a lot about Moby Dick that is just kind of messy as far as books go. Sure. <laughs> uh, and I think people in the 1800s might not have been ready for that. Right. Um so Melville also he was he was considered a uh, he is considered a part of the American Renaissance period, which I had I had a lot of trouble with that term. I know it's not Melville's term. It's something that people applied to a period in the mid 1800s um, from the from 1850 to 1855, I guess, is when it was busiest. And that's when you get a lot of like classic American works or like canonized American works. So you get Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman. Um, you get uh, Walden by Thoreau. Uh, you get, who wrote Scarlet Letter? Somebody did. Hawthorne, Hawthorne. Hawthorne. So you get that in there too. And then in recent years, in um, in reaction to it being all white dudes, um, you kind of get some other authors retroactively added in, like Harriet Beecher Stowe and uh, Emily Dickinson. But it, seems, it just seems presumptive to be like, okay, here's America's Renaissance, which lasted for like five years. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting because, yeah, it was it was uh, really early in our lifespan, if you want to look at it that way. Sure. And it was pre-Civil War, which is when you think you, you if you're going to have a rebirth, maybe it's after your country tears itself into, maybe. not before. Maybe. Um, yeah, that is a really narrow span of time compared to the actual Renaissance. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so so yeah, I, I just thought that that particular the R word in there is is misplaced, and um, the other one of the other fun facts about Herman Melville that I thought was interesting was that his dad, um, Alan Melville, 
like he he ra- he raised his kids very uh luxuriously early on okay but uh he was living beyond his means and by 1830 he had accumulated a total of $20,000 in debt and i did the math on that with an internet website and in today's dollars that is about $513,000 whoa that's a lot and then his dad died of a cold in 1832. No. <laughs> and Melville wasn't in school, so so um, you know people posit that he must have been around. And in his book Pierre, there's a there's a character, a Pierre's father in that book dies under similar circumstances. So that must have been fun. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned Nathaniel Hawthorne when you were talking about the Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the American Renaissance. The Amer- excuse me, <laughs> Erasmus and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, that's an Erasmus joke for all you humanist uh, enthusiasts. Good one. Good one. Good one. Uh, <laughs> it's not even a joke. I just said Erasmus. That, no, that's that's what makes it so good. <laughs> I'm gonna milk this cow for all it's worth. Oh my um, God. In the in the 1850s, during the American Renaissance, uh, <laughs> Mel- <laughs> we're never going to lose that. Melville uh, actually took property in Massachusetts and befriended Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote The Scarlet Letter, among other things, I'm sure. Yeah. And Melville was a huge fan uh, and kind of struck up the friendship with him. And it was very meaningful for him to have uh hawthorne like moby dick yeah and and he actually wrote the bulk of moby dick like during that period yeah um so it's interesting i don't you know i I don't have a a sense of the chronology of like a lot of 20th century authors in terms of who their influences are maybe it's just because folks from a century ago are so well canonized that you we've talked about this like folks in the beginning of the 20th century around fitzgerald and faulkner and you can kind of trace the lineage between some of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you have as good of a sense of that today, but I like pointing it out when we can find it for folks who've been around for a while. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And um, the last Melville thing, like he was a, you know, he was a sailor from uh, 1939 to 1844 or 1839 to 1844. He did not move backwards in time. <laughs> <laughs> he took a really cool boat. Um, and, uh, 1841 is when he was on the whaler, um, a Kushnet, or I think that's how you pronounce that. Let's go with it. Let's yeah. go with it. And, uh, during that voyage, you know, he was on it for a while and then he just kind of deserted <laughs> for a few weeks in the summer and just lived among the native peoples. Taipei yeah. was the name of the people. And sure. Uh, yeah. That was his first book was called Taipei and it was about those people and as you can imagine about a white dude writing about native people in the mid 1800s like it was not super sensitive it's very it's very much about like the noble savage archetype yeah and that's that is woven throughout the fabric of moby dick (laughs) yeah so let's uh let's jump on moby dick then and ride this whale ride this whale um I'm now, can apologize. you talk about this one, or am I going to have to talk about this yeah, one? The, too? <laughs> it's a good thing that you're here, Andrew. It's a very good thing you're here. Uh, have you read Moby Dick? 
I read an abridged version a very long time ago. And Great. I understand you go. <laughs> I understand that you wish this had been an abridged version. Um, I don't necessarily wish, but it does it did you know, obviously it delayed me doing it for the show for a good long time. Um obviously. it's also just a big, fat, unwieldy book in a way that I've read I've read books like it. Um so to to what I mean is so even the like that first thing the joke you made when you said call me Andrew right that's, that's my the first that's my name I wasn't telling you yep. no you were joking your name's yeah it's Andrew okay why would no wait why would that joke be funny like you should start at the beginning well that's what I'm what do you mean like start at the beginning of the book that's what I'm working up towards okay with the part where the book begins with call me Ishmael okay there you go you got there oh man. <laughs> It's a good but thing the I'm thing here. Is, the thing is, the book doesn't begin with Call Me Ishmael. It begins with weird errata. It begins with, like, fake textbook stuff about whales. Like, it's about whale etymology and extracts of Shakespeare talking about whales and stuff. And then, then... Ishmael shows up. Okay. So from the very beginning, you don't have a straightforward novel in the in the sense of the romantic novel and in how novels were written at this time, I think. Right. Does that make my, sense? Yeah, because my memory of this book is that I mean the Ahab stuff and like the hunt for the whale and all the, the, the heavy symbolism that's in there is the biggest part of the of what people take away from the book but it's at least like a third about just whaling procedures <laughs> yeah it's just and even and then another third is just like hanging out in nantucket hanging out with queequeg like it's so okay so hanging with start, queequeg hang with queequeg this hang with mr queequeg <laughs> <laughs> so the book opens Technically, the story opens with Ishmael. He's going to tell you the story about this boat that he was on called the Pequod. Okay. Pequod? Pequod. Pequod? Pequod. Deltoid? Pequod. Pequod. And it was captained by Captain Ahab. And so Ishmael's going to go on this boat. He's going to go out. He's going to go be a harpooner. At this point in Ishmael's life, he hasn't been on a whaling ship before though he's been on other, like, merchant boats before. Okay. So he goes to Nantucket, um, insert limerick joke here. Okay. And uh, that's actually, like, a third of the book as well. It's just Nantucket limericks. limericks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There once was a whale named Moby Dick. Did you know? Well, I mean, that's not a great limerick to start with. But, yeah, I I didn't know that uh, Melville popularized the dirty limerick. Yeah, I can't follow that up. Um, <laughs> I can't. I can't riff on that right now. Actually, you just can't make up a limerick on the spot. That's too. No, I. I can't. Um, so Ishmael, you know, he's going through Nantucket. He's looking for a boat to sign on with, and this is like an interesting, to me, industrial exercise where you're just like, I'm just gonna go work on this boat for a while. <laughs> I'll be gone for three years, I guess. And he, I don't quite understand it because it was like 700 pages ago but they don't get paid like a wage they get a they get paid in like a take from all the whale that they bring back okay so they work on commission yeah work on whale commission (laughs) okay 
Um, so what you know, it's it's he kind of phrases it like it's a really sweet deal, like you get to go live on a boat and have someone pay for all your food, and you just get paid based on how much whale you bring back. But your food but th- sucks, right? Like- but, yeah, but your food sucks, and the rest of this book happens, <laughs> which has some pretty gnarly stuff in it so i'm not sure it's a sweet deal yeah i mean i, um, I do wish that's how job applications worked still you like just walked just like, into a store i could just like go out onto a dock and be like anybody got a boat <laughs> i want to go into a subway and be like who needs a sandwich <laughs> just go back there and start making them anybody need a sandwich i'm gonna make a sandwich go back there and start making them until they start giving you w2s <laughs> Well, it's it's not a wage. They're going to feed me sandwiches, and then I'll also get sandwich commission, tomato commission. Okay. That's how it works. (laughs) I'm going to commandeer the subway. (laughs) (laughs) Has you seen the white bread? It's Pequot a type of pepper, I'm not sure. I think it's a picante sauce. Oh, good. <laughs> the Pequot sauce. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. So, to get on a ship, first you have to hang out in Nantucket, right? And, <laughs> and just look like you want to be just, on a boat. Just walk around like you want to be on a boat. <laughs> so, there's like whole chapters, which is like, it's like its own little story where... Uh, Ishmael's walking around, he goes to the inn, there's like five pages dedicated to a description of a painting about a boat, like, this book takes its time. Uh-huh. And eventually he gets set up, there's not enough room at the inn, but the barkeep is like, hey, yeah, I know, and then he's like, Jesus shows up. Um, but the barkeep is like, hey, you you could stay in this room where I have this other guy staying, like, you just go sleep there, it's fine. Like, you'll be roommates. And apparently this was, like, a thing that you did in the 19th century if you were an itinerant whaler, I guess. (laughs) Um, But who does Ishmael meet in his bed but Queequeg, the noble savage? Tell me more about Queequeg. Okay. So Queequeg hails from... I want to get this right. uh, He hails from Rocavoco. (laughs) Which is a made-up island. Cool. Um, it's a made-up island of cannibals. Okay. And they he spends a good ten chapters talking about how cool of a cannibal Queequeg is. Like right in a row? Um, it, get, it takes its time. Okay. Queequeg like, goes to church. That's p- pretty cool for a cannibal. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading you the quote earlier before we started recording where after all is said and done... Um, they go to they go to bed in the same bed, and uh, Ishmael says to the reader, "Better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian." Because <laughs> uh, he says, for all his tattooings, he was on the whole a clean, comely-looking cannibal. Ooh, comely. So uh, this is just the beginning of what we were alluding to earlier, where there's like the enlightened white man of the 19th century. Is not doesn't real really jive with the twenty first century, <laughs> right? You know, there's oh, uh, there's chapters about how Queequeg left his village to go whaling with the white man, and like it, you know, 
broaden his horizons and maybe he'll eventually he will go back to his village and and rule as king or whatever um <laughs> but then there's also a lot of Ishmael's fascination with Queequeg's bizarre religion which obviously is made up so Melville can just like do whatever he wants okay um, I need to pause real quick so I can search and see if see what the name of his god is. Okay. Okay, I'm back. Um, I needed to pause because I thought that Queequeg's like little uh, totem that he worships to, I couldn't remember what its name was. It's Yojo, and for a second I thought it was Yolo. <laughs> I could have sworn that he worshipped a little totem called Yolo. It's true. You do only live the one time. He's the god of only living once. So after like a few days, they become fast friends. Um, and there's because all sorts Queequeg of... is like housebroken. Just yeah, basically, he just wants to be able to say that he has a cannibal friend. <laughs> yeah, kind of like Ishmael befriends him after uh, uh, Queequeg spends like he stays out all night selling all of his shrunken heads because um, he didn't want to do it on Sunday because that seemed bad form. Sure. So he was laid out Saturday night selling shrunken heads, uh, and that's then he a, came that's home. That's like a side gig. Yeah, it's something he's doing while heads. <laughs> while he's waiting to get on a whaling boat. Right. Uh, so they become fast friends, and they eventually decide to go on a ship together. Um, and Queequeg kind of kind of pledges a Wookiee life debt to Ishmael. <laughs> Why does it have to be a Wookiee life dead? That's like the That's only just how Queequeg is being treated in this book. <laughs> it's Wookiee life day. Yeah. Um, He's a man that only Ishmael can understand. Basically, there's like a whole section where they're they're staying in this lodge together. And Queequeg goes through some sort of Ramadan where he won't move. And he just sits in the room and he's like locked in there. And Ishmael needs him and they end up having to like break the door down and then... Queequeg and Ishmael make up and it's really weird. Aww. There's like there's plenty of latent homoeroticism in this book that has been well documented in mm-hmm. the literary canon. Um we'll encounter it occasionally as we talk today. But there's like pages upon pages of them like rolling around in bed together. <laughs> like you know what I mean? And I'm only sort of exaggerating for comic effect. I totally so, ship Ishmael and Queequeg, though. I ship, what? I ship them. You ship them? Yeah, do you not know what that means? I mean, not, not, like, at all. not like the Pequod. What are you talking it's about? It's when you pay attention to a work of popular fiction and you want two of the characters in it to be romantically involved. It's short for relationship. That silence was me having a stroke. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's what? cool. <laughs> what? Where did you get that from? It, from like... The, the internet? internet? I don't know. Ah. Like it's around. People it's people know about shipping. I'm trying I to think of people shipping. who I ship. I don't know. <laughs> who else do I ship? Queequeg and Ishmael, that's a big one. Okay. Um ooh. I, Mario Luigi and Peach. Well say like okay, okay. Like let's let's bring out bring out a real world example because you seem to be having trouble with this. Like tabloids ship jennifer aniston and brad pitt still okay okay because that's That's, what like half their covers are about 
Okay, I understand now. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and a lot of I times, like the author is aware of people who ship them and trolls them intentionally, which is, I think, what the tabloid people are doing. At this yeah, that's point. what they want. <laughs> yeah. So that's shipping. Great. So, um, cool. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> so, eventually, um, Ishmael and Queequeg wind up aboard the Pequod, and it's ultimately. Queequeg's like physical prowess and intimidating demeanor that uh, secure them a position on the boat. Um, he very quickly impresses the two other captains who are not actually going to go on the boat, but are in charge of like hiring the people for the boat. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so they decide to go on the Pequod and all the whole time, everyone's like, Yo, that captain, that captain Ahab, he's a, he's a weird guy. He's he's a good man, and people will go to their deaths for him. But yo, he's a weirdo, and they sure will, and they sure will. <laughs> uh, and there's this little thing that happens when they go on the boat that I'm glad I clocked it when I was reading it um, because I think Melville kind of drops the thread a little bit when they're about to set out on the Pequod and they're loading up the ship. There's a section where I think Ishmael is the one who sees it. A bunch of like shadowy dudes get on the boat before everyone else, like at like dawn before people are supposed to be getting on the boat. Okay. Um, so like when they're on the boat for the first time shipping out of Nantucket, like they don't see Ahab. Oh God, it's going <laughs> to reframe the entire podcast. I can't, Hey, I'm, I'm so glad you did that. Cause it kind of takes the onus off me for, this book because you introduced a weird thing to the show <laughs> so now if you're just off kilter it's because you're trying to digest what shipping is yep it's because of you thanks okay and they don't even meet ahab for a good long time like he's in his uh captain's quarters you know longer than he probably should be they meet starbuck who's one of the who's like the first mate you meet stub who's another one of the mates uh, Flask is another guy who works with Stub. Um, there's Pip and Doughboy work on the boat. What the... Um, Pip is a small uh, black man. Uh, because of the because they use the word boy, I don't know if they mean that he's actually a boy or not. Uh, boy just... can refer to just like a low, a low, end yeah, precisely guy. Like um, um, Melville was signed on to his first ship as a boy. Yes. Um, and Pip and Doughboy are, Doughboy is, is white, uh, but they're kind of addressed as a, as a pair in the book. Um, they are both what are called ship keeps, I think is the word, or ship keepers. Okay. They don't go out on the whaling boats. Like, when everyone's on the ship, this is a distinction that I had to drill into my brain. The ship is the Pequod, all right? Mm -hmm. Everyone hangs out on the Pequod. It's, it's going to carry all your crap. And that's where you eat and then where you crap. And then uh, someone yells that there's a whale over there and everyone gets into tiny whale boats and they go whale hunting. Okay. Cool. Yeah, sure. Because I, uh, I guess like the whale boats are smaller and you don't want your big ship to get sunk by a whale. I don't know. Yeah. And you want to get in a bunch of smaller boats so that you can kind of like encircle the whale if you need to or whatever okay um is that all the crewmen is there like those... a stump and crack and 
Flub. Oh, well, um, okay, so there are the mates, which are Stub, Starbuck, and Flask. Um, There are the Harpooners, led by Queequeg. Okay. Now, this is where all your noble savages come from, all right? So get ready for these names. Tashtago, Dagu, Mm -hmm. and Fadala. Okay. All right. I actually remember all those names. Okay, good. Like, as you said them, they sounded familiar to me. Um, Tashtego is a Native American. Dagu is an African. And Fadala is actually part of that group of mysterious dudes who show up um, on one of the first whale sightings. Ahab has his own special boat. And a bunch of dudes that no one knew were on the boat show up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, led by Fadala, who is, I want to make sure I get this right, he's a Persian, um, though the book, Melville often refers to all those guys as Tiger Yellow, which is like a weirdly specific description for people from Asia of wherever Melville wants them to be from. Yeah. So let's just, okay. This is, yeah, it's just like a sticky kind of. It's a sticky wicket. And it's just kind of understood that, yeah, it's going to be racist without really yeah. meaning to be. Without it. Maybe with meaning to be. I don't yeah. know. But. <laughs> um, the the stuff with Fadala and, or Fadala, excuse me, and his other guys does feel a little untoward because, because they appear out of nowhere and because they seem to be seducing Ahab from the rest of his crew a little bit or mm-hmm. like serving some other nefarious purpose. Folks like Stubb and Starbuck are a little more want to say things like those guys are literally the devil. Okay. Um, which is probably more that like there's no explanation for why they're there from from Ahab than there is like a racist element to it. But the fact that there are others is not helpful okay. to that reality. Um, so um, so- I don't know, like leaving behind Tash Tego and Queen Amidala and all the rest of them. Um <laughs> I wanted to know, like because like like we said before the Ahab thing everybody knows yeah it's one of the things that has long since seeped into popular culture and it's been done and done and done and done and done my favorite Moby Dick adaptation at this point is Star Trek First Contact sure um, great how did knowing all that stuff like affect your reading of this book because I can only imagine like as long as it is. You're kind. You've kind of got to be wondering when the Ahab stuff is going to start happening, right? Like a little bit. And so what I'll say is, I was very, I was struck with Ahab's first appearance. Like it, he shows up. I think he shows up at the right spot in the book. Like you're pretty comfortable with Ishmael. Yes, Ishmael has taken his time teaching you about Queequeg, mm-hmm. um, and he's talked a little bit about what whaling is but he hasn't gone into this thing that he does in the middle of the book where there's just like 15 chapters in a row about how to cut up a whale um so ahab shows up and the introduction of the quest happens like ahab lost his leg he's been whaling for you know 40 50 years and his goal is to kill this whale and his his nature his monomaniac nature is such that the crew can't help but succumb to it, Ishmael included. Um, But what I will say is that I expected Ishmael to 
be more of a character. How about that? Let's start there. Okay. Because Call Me Ishmael, literally, we've we've referenced it a couple of times. It is one of the most famous quotes in American literature. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps that it's the first line of this book, and it introduces the narrator of this seminal work of American fiction. But Ishmael kind of, when Ahab shows up in chapter 29... Ishmael doesn't show up again until like the 40s. There's 140 chapters in this book, just for <laughs> reference. Um, and in the latter half of the book, Ishmael's voice is only really clear that it's Ishmael when he's talking about the nonfiction elements of the book, which is like, this is how we cut the head of the whale off so that we can take all of the sperm oil out. And the sperm oil becomes all of the candles in your house or, or whatever it is. Um, so Ahab and his crew kind of dominate the story. But I will also say there's not enough Ahab, at least in my reading of it. Okay. So um, well, to answer your original Ishmael, question. The Ishmael thing I can understand because like the need for an audience surrogate in this kind of a story Especially one that apparently has so much specialized and super detailed knowledge about whaling in it. Like, you need someone's eyes to see that through. And if Ishmael is just an empty vessel for that most of the time, I think it can be forgiven. Yes, fair. It's too bad that there is not. Like, tell me more about the Ahab that you wanted. Why didn't you get enough Ahab? I guess, and maybe, maybe I did get enough. I don't know. Because you're right. He is little dabble do, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah buh, 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 buh. <laughs> oh i see what you're doing yeah uh that reminds me of a thing we we learned in kindergarten a little bit of glue will go a long way yeah apparently you there was a problem said exasperatedly to some kid who just got glue everywhere <laughs> i distinctly recall a, like a classroom wide announcement that we were using too much glue <laughs> a dot of glue is enough and kids would be handing in construction paper that was like soggy as it was <laughs> pasted together. Just dripping with Elmer's. You could see the glue through it. I don't know if I've told a story on the podcast. Eventually, I think we're just going to start repeating ourselves. But yep, go for it. Once, as a kid, my mom told me to clean some ice cube trays. Do you know this story? No, I've never heard this before. And um, I, I had, your you mom's know, really funny, so I'm looking forward to where Having this is never go. cleaned anything before, I didn't understand how dish soap worked. So... <laughs> I lovingly filled each of the ice cube receptacles all the way up with dish soap. (laughs) And my mom did not check on me until I had done that a bunch of times. So, wasted a bunch of dish soap. Uh, But before we get back to the book, I want to tell the story about the time that I really liked cucumbers as a kid. I still do. Okay. And I saw what appeared to be a giant cucumber sitting on the kitchen counter. Mm-hmm. I was maybe like seven, and I decided I wanted me some of that cucumber, so I took a bite out of it. It was not a cucumber. It was a large zucchini. Okay. <laughs> and I ruined that zucchini for everyone else because there was just a big bite taken out of it. <laughs> like, like, it was ready to be chopped for something, and I said, nope, that's mine. By your I'm going to put my grubby mouth on it. It's <laughs> my, my gr- zucchini now. Grubby, cookie, crumb-coated kid mouth. <laughs> So anyway, a Captain Ahab... Goes, a little goes a long way. little right? goes a long way. His quest is pretty clear. And, and I think that when you're reading the book, you know 
what Ahab wants, and the book doesn't hide that. So I I don't know. I, I don't know if we necessarily need more. I guess what I'll say is that I found the interruptions of that story, I found them frustrating. Probably right. because I was trying to get to the end of the story so I could talk about it on my weird podcast. Right. Like, I will cop to that because I think there is probably... I've done a little bit of reading about the analysis of the book since then, and there are scholars who try and... Whether or not this was on purpose, I don't know. Uh, Ishmael is in there as sort of a Melville surrogate, right? Right. But you can also view him as a counter to Ahab. Like... Ahab is the singularly minded, like, pursuer of a quest. There's a whole big thing about how whenever you meet a, another boat at sea, both of the captains are supposed to go have, like, drinks on one boat while the first mates hang out on the other boat. Mm-hmm. And Ahab never does this. He gets in his boat, he goes over and he sees people, and he goes, has seen the white whale? And then they're like, we've got problems. Like, can we exchange mail or, like, whatever? And he's like, white whale, white whale. Let's talk about the white whale. Uh, so he's, like, willfully, f- like, flaunting ship code and procedure. Flouting. He's flouting. flouting it. Yeah. He's not flaunting it? No, he's not check flaunting out, it. Check out my ship code. <laughs> check it out. Um, so he is, you know, going against the grain because of his own quest and the other side of that coin or another side of that die this metaphor is getting terrible um ishmael is the great digressor like so anytime something occurs on the boat he's going to take another three chapters explaining what that is and why that happened Mm -hmm. like there's a whole chapter dedicated to how the rope is uh woven through the boats so that when they harpoon the whale and need to drag it back, uh, it has a bunch of points of contact, right, to make it strong. Right. Um, there's a whole chapter dedicated to how you cut the whale up, and then another one dedicated to where the best oil comes from, and then another dedicated to how you store the oil, and then another dedicated to the skeleton of the whale. It's, like, kind of nuts, but you could look at it on a on a spectrum of going from a, a pretty general like here's what whaling is to here's some stories about whales I heard of <laughs> to here's an encyclopedic series of chapters about specific whales that we hunt right now to this is what we do with the whale once we like it kind of zeroes in and then the end point of those nonfiction chapters is this like what happens if we hunt all the whales? Um, and Ishmael kind of believes that whales are so special and powerful that they will remain with us forever. Um, eh, and no. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> you were, I don't know about that one, Ishmael. Have you seen they Star might, Trek Four? Yeah, they might leave for space after we ruin everything. <laughs> um, so the quest itself is Ahab's going to give this gold doubloon to whoever spots Moby Dick. Um, and then after they kill a bunch of other whales and they like get a bunch of oil on their ship from all those whales, Mm -hmm. um, at one point Ahab is, there's like this whole prophecy foreshadowing element to it, which feels very Nathaniel Hawthorne. I'm actually glad that I read about 
Melville's relationship with Hawthorne because it feels very much like red letter in the sky kind of nonsense. Right. Where Fadala predicts that Ahab, not unlike uh, Macbeth, can only be killed by hemp and will see two hearses before he dies. Oh, yeah, yeah. That whole thing. So we're going to we're, we're gonna spoil the end of the book. It's Moby Dick. You're fine. Um <laughs> After like meeting nine other boats and finally tracking down Moby Dick off Japan, off the coast of Japan, jeez, uh, from Nantucket, yeah, from Nantucket, they're supposed to go Lord. like down, yeah, down towards South America, and they go around Africa instead, and then all the way through the Indian Ocean and all the way to Japan. Um, whoops, <laughs> whoops. So there's this like at one point Ahab has the the blacksmith like forge this special spear that he's gonna kill Moby Dick with. And then they get in this big lightning storm, and the spear gets struck by lightning, and it looks like it's on fire. And then the boat gets struck by lightning, but all the oil from the from the hull that was leaking like soaked up into the wood, so the boat's like cool but on fire, and it like looks really sweet. Um, and then Fadala predicts this thing where Ahab can only be killed by hemp, and he'll see two horses before he dies. And Queequeg almost died, so he had someone build him a coffin. So there's this coffin on the ship that's right. acting as the life buoy. Mm-hmm. So then it all comes together like an episode of Seinfeld, where at the <laughs> end, uh, Moby Dick is just rampaging through all the boats and just like destroying boats left and right, killing fools. Uh, Fadala gets, he, you know, the harpoon gets stuck in Moby Dick. He gets kind of lashed to Moby Dick. So that's Hearse 1. And then Hearst 2 is the boat itself that gets exploded, and it's made from American wood, which is part of the prophecy. And then uh, Ahab himself dies because the harpoon, the rope of the harpoon, like, gets wrapped around his neck. Excuse me. Um, Gets wrapped around his neck and, like, carries him down into the ocean. Um, Kind of very, like, no man of woman born kind of technicality. Newman. So there's this fantastical element that is a nice counterbalance to the hey, let me tell you what whales are sure. sections from Ishmael. Like what, maybe you haven't thought this through, but like what percentage of the book would you say roughly is actually the part that people think of when they think of Moby Dick? 30 to 40 percent okay which I is might, not that much <laughs> no and i might be i might be undervaluing that um i think that there's parts of the other characters that are interesting i there's a really wonderful passage about starbuck when he actually almost decides to kill ahab that feels mm-hmm. very much it feels very shakespearean and there's a lot there's been a lot of writing comparing uh, noting Melville's interest in Shakespeare. It feels like the moment in Hamlet where Hamlet almost kills Claudius while he's praying um, and says, I could do this right now and it would end all of this stuff, but I can't do it right now because he's, you know, it's not a fight or anything right. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Starbucks. Should have done it, man. Should have done it, Starbucks. Should have <laughs> done it. Um but I think the the whaling stuff is really what caught me off guard. And I did read something that said because it was on part of the era was that fiction was a great way to pass on history. Uh, there, there are some who have speculated that Melville 
one of the reasons that that was a huge part of the book is that he did want to capture this style of this this lifestyle. He wanted to capture it accurately and he wanted to include it in this tale, but a simple adventure wouldn't suffice. Sure. And I'm sure you know a lot more about whaling than you did when you started. I do. I do. Um I couldn't recite it all to you right now cuz it's just so important. Um <laughs> and so complicated is what I meant to say. But I think it's interesting like the the what they're harvesting and there's a lot of actually really interesting language in the book that talks about what they're really out there to get is not even the meat but the oil and that part of this slightly pre-industrial world is like lit by all of this oil right um and so that becomes you know reading it in the 20th 21st century there's something really interesting about our relationship to an industry and how it produces for us that seemed relevant mm-hmm. um and i think is probably not quite analogous to why people started picking it up in the early 20th century but i think a post-industrial revolution era could really relate and find meaning in that section mm-hmm. that and those are the sections that are not the ahab story right so i feel like there is thematic value there that while it's interrupting this quest, um, raises some interesting questions. Right. So I do want to talk about spermacetti. Spermacetti. Is that spaghetti? Why is it? No. So the they're hunting for a sperm whale. Moby Dick is an albino sperm whale. Cool. And the reason that sperm whales are are valuable as we said before is they have this sub substance called spermacetti is how i'm going to say it okay um i don't know if that's true in their heads that's like this white waxy milky oil stuff mm-hmm. that you can make into candles etc etc and they think it might control like buoyancy in whales or it might also help with echolocation um there's theories supporting both but so after they capture one of the whales or kill it or whatever they need to do, they like cut out part of its head and take all the spermacetti out. And then eventually what they're going to do after it kind of dries for a little bit, they're going to melt it down in these what are called tripods. And that's how you can then fashion candles and stuff out of it. But first, you, I guess you, you have to like squeeze it down. Um, Ew. Yeah. So just listen to this, okay? Just listen. They're going to squeeze some spermacetti, okay? This is Ishmael talking. Okay. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze all the morning long. I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborer's hands in it, mistaking their hands for for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally, as much as to say, Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill-humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all around. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. So there's some uh, 
sexual undertones to this sure. novel. Sure. And I'm just going to say, I guess when you're doing this, you have a lot of time with your thoughts. <laughs> you, just you end up thinking about a lot of really weird stuff while you're squeezing sperm, sperm, yeah, sperm I, and jelly. <laughs> I think that we're allowed to have, we the reader from Melville's point of view, maybe we are allowed to have some of that humor. I don't think he's completely avoiding it because that is kind of ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you were on a boat with 30 dudes for three years, you might make some sperm jokes now and then. Maybe sometimes, yes. Just just saying. Um, but there's a little bit to it that I think is is part of the overall novel that has to, has to do with, like, I don't know, getting back to nature or, like, me- losing yourself in some sort of meditation or thinking about a thing over and over again. Um, it's a bit of a stretch for, like, Here's the section where I'm squeezing all the sperm. Um, but it does seem to jive with what else was going on during the American Renaissance. Um, the same era that bored Thoreau and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That's a real struck me funny, that passage is. Because that is like the... Uh, I was reading the book being like, oh yeah, there's the jokes about spermaceti and sperm and stuff like that. That's funny. But then that passage But then it just up. went nuts. <laughs> It went crazy all over the place. Uh, the that what is the name of that chapter? It is a squeeze of the hand. That's the <laughs> okay. name of that chapter. It's worth two in the bush. Worth two in the bush. Uh, so that's a thing that happened in Moby Dick. Cool. Um, uh, man, like I'm just the thing I keep coming back to is just how all over the place this book is. Yeah, and I just can't imagine a modern story like a modern popular story being able to do this like i don't think the audience would give you the leverage because i don't know storytelling now or at least like mass market storytelling is about being economical and like making and like connecting the dots thematically on stuff and like making characters who two people care about. Like that's the kind of stuff that people respond to. And it just sounds like this book is just full of stuff. It's, it is kind of just full of stuff. I think what gets lost in all the stuff is, um, the storytelling around Ahab that feels very much like conventional foreshadowing and, I'm going to lay in this thing about the coffin so that that becomes a symbol that then later pays off when people die. Like that feels very 19th century, turn of the 20th century American lit. Like I know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're saying, the messier elements of it, if, the, if this book were written today, I feel like it would actually succumb to a lot of criticism vis-a-vis the non-fiction parts like i feel like people would get really caught up in that um you know he was basing it on not only his own experience he was moved by an account of the nantucket ship essex that had you know crashed um in 1820 i believe and then there were stories about the whale mocha dick which was a real whale okay a real white sperm whale that killed some folks um mocha dick and so I think there's an element of that. I thought about this actually when I was watching the movie Unbroken, which is a book that we should probably read for the show. Yeah, maybe. Um, that 
the adherence to historical accuracy in some spots uh, left me wanting a better or more riveting story. Right. But there were also parts where I feel like they cut stuff from the real story in the pursuit of telling the story they were telling. So it's, it's that double-edged sword, you know, um, that I don't know that there's ever a perfect answer to. Yeah, right. I don't know. The book is messy. It's got it's got a lot of metatextual stuff going on, stuff that, you know, in my frame of reference is not wholly unlike something like David Foster Wallace, or I'm sure it's not unlike James Joyce. Like, there's chapters that are have stage directions and have no he said, she said, but you're just supposed to understand that it's two characters talking like it's a script. Um, then there's chapters that are have footnotes because we're talking about whale parts. Um, then there are chapters that are written like biblical sermons and are filled with exclamation points and you're not even sure who's talking. Mm-hmm. Um, from a conventional standpoint, the idea that Ishmael even knows all of what's happening breaks down about 30 or 40 chapters in there's like scenes that he could not have been a part of like right and does not even cop to being privy to he just decides to tell them um and actually there was a bit of a hubbub in the initial reviews of the book there was a hubbub because ishmael is the only surviving crew member of the pequod Mm -hmm. and you don't learn that until the epilogue which is just like one paragraph long but there was a there was a British publishing of the book that did not include the epilogue, and people got all upset that there was no way that Ishmael could have told any of that story because he was dead. <laughs> people, I like that. Like all you need to dispel that is like a paragraph at the end that says, "Oh yeah, and Ishmael didn't die." Well, the or end. it's also it doesn't matter because it's a story. Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter. No, you're right about that, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably wrap up. There's plenty of stuff in Moby Dick that I did not cover. Um, both my own just grappling with the story and for sake of time. Um, so if you have your own favorite parts of Moby Dick that you wish we'd talked about, you can uh, send us those thoughts. Where should they send them, Andrew? Uh, they should send them to our email address at overduepod at gmail.com. Um, we also have a Twitter page up at Facebook. Uh, we have a Twitter page Wait up a at second. Twitter.com slash overdue pod and Facebook up at Facebook.com slash overdue pod. Um, lots of you, lots of you have been getting in contact with us over the last like week or so. And we've actually gotten some really, uh, some particularly nice messages this week. Um, so thank you to, um, Dennis, uh, was, was one person who contacted us. Um, Anthony contacted us and asked if we would put the show on Stitcher, which is another podcast distribution thing. I have, I have filled out the paperwork and we're just waiting to be <laughs> in triplicate. We're just waiting to be approved at the, at the I guess so awesome. that, that should happen sometime this week and we'll put up an announcement when it's ready to go. And then, um, a quick note on last week's, uh, the secret history episode from Samantha who, who wrote it on our Facebook wall. Um, she wishes we had discussed more of the role of Dionysian rites and their studies on ancient Greece, as well as the development of the characters themselves. And I will, uh, I will cop to that. Like that was partly time and partly it just had been like two months since I'd read the book. And it's one of the reasons oh, why I wanted to go back and why I still might go back is that 
Um, I don't know that I did those characters justice in the show, and I don't know that I probably caught everything about them. Fair um, enough. While I was reading the first time around. so And she says there is a Plano, Texas, by the way, north of Dallas. Okay. Not the same as Plano, California, which is the... Town, oh, such uh, a good name the for town a town. In the book. Yeah, Plano. Uh, <laughs> and she says, "Happy 2015," and that's all I've got. Oh man, I just want to thank everyone for rallying behind 2015. Um, thanks to Lee and Alex and Eric and Jonathan and Alex again uh, and the right honorable someone on Twitter and <laughs> bookish girl. And everyone who's left us reviews on iTunes as well. It, it just means a lot that uh, we're getting a lot of support for the show. It, it helped power me through Moby Dick, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, yeah, we kind of got uh, derailed in our housekeeping stuff here. But if they want to subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes and other stuff, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com. It's a website. Uh, it has back episodes of the show. So if you read other books that we've talked about that you want to go listen to or or you don't want to read those books and you want us to fill in all the blanks for you good luck you can go listen to the old episodes <laughs> you'll also see amazon links for the books that we've read and you can you know buy a copy so you can read it if it sounded interesting or you want to go buy other stuff on amazon you can still click those links to take you to amazon and what that does it gives us a little bit of a cut to help support the show moving forward help us buy books and pay for hosting and all that good stuff uh, we couldn't do without you and and that is you the listener and, and that is really a very legitimate and tangible way that you can help support the show uh, also on the website as andrew mentioned you can follow links to our itunes page where you can rate and review us and that's a great way to help other itunes users discover the show which makes it grow and then we're all happy uh, and you can also plug that rss feed into any other pod catcher of your choice, though, if you are a Citra fan, uh, we are forthcoming. Yes. Andrew, um, what are you reading for next week? Um, I am going to be reading Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Oh, which great. Which would have fit in well with our Halloween stuff, but we just didn't didn't get around to it. Cool. Um, okay, this is episode 95. We're on the road to 100. And we're, I don't know, we're not going to, we're not going to say just what we're doing for that yet. It's probably obvious by now, but <laughs> we're going to pretend like it's a surprise. Um, so in the lead up to that episode, um, Craig, I think you're going to do like a graphic novel. Yep. Um, we're planning to do one more choose your own adventure story, which I know some people like more than other people i guess <laughs> go ahead and download it you don't need to listen it's we'll fine tr you will try us. and we'll try to lean into the goofy voices and see what we can do um then there's another book of craig's that he doesn't know what it is and then episode 100 but if you if you have i don't know if you we've gotten a couple i wouldn't say testimonials but like listener stories about stuff that you've done while you're listening to the show or that or times when the show's come up in the real world and you've been surprised. If you have stories like that, like send it to us for episode 100 and maybe we can maybe we can read some of them or something. Like I want I want to try to make a big deal about it. Oh yeah. What if people what if people like recorded themselves? People, people could, could do that. People could do that if they wanted to. I mean, I'm not going to say they have to, but well, and if they sounded bad, we might not use it, but Yeah, or if they said mean things or cr or cusses. Or well, yeah, or cusses. We could bleep them, but anyway. <laughs> uh, 
Um, that is all for this week. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with that Ray Bradbury story. And until then, everybody try to be happy. We, we do every year it seems like the oscars are more and more engorged with based on a true story oh yeah no it's all true story stuff we saw that um benedict cumberbatch what's it today um, yeah it's kind um, of the, telling the that you don't recall the, who it's about the, the alan game. turing film yes the, alan the turing guy film. who cracked the code who well, then when, was sentenced to death for being gay basically yeah, yeah and and that movie by the way i don't i know this isn't a movie podcast but at the end of that movie they do the um the like animal house thing where they say what all the characters ended up doing and it said in 2013 that the queen gave him a posthumous pardon correct for his crime of homosexuality and it's like boy i hope that made you feel better because (laughs) that it's a little too late like at that point acknowledging it just just reminds everybody how terrible you are yeah that's true i don't know it's 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 a nice gesture i guess that feels really i don't want to say it feels really mean but it just like it's really it's really too bad yeah that's true yeah Um, i don't know so that's that's my thoughts on the imitation game and when Susanna asked me if i wanted to see the imitation game I could not remember if it was that one or the Stephen Hawking one. Uh-huh. So I I had to ask her which um which movie about a brilliant man who had to overcome <laughs> adversity. We saw the we we're just going to go down this path. We saw Laura and I saw the Stephen Hawking one and I liked it for what it was. I think there are plenty of people who wanted a story about the scientist and got predominantly a story from the wife's perspective mm-hmm. and then when like the credits rolled and it says it was based on a book written by his wife i was like oh well that's that's why that <laughs> and not and i don't mean that disparagingly it just means that's what the story was trying to be about Man, it wasn't I thought she had a lot of really cool sex scenes and yes, i guess she, i know why she, now it really became her story in the latter half hmm, weird uh i don't know this book is cool we can maybe put that in after the after the music at the end sure